Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London. A church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Father, truly we thank you for another day. Another day where we can um, come together as family. Where we can gather together in your name, Lord Jesus, and just sing praises to you and Lord to have this opportunity Lord to sit underneath your word Um, I do pray Lord Jesus that as um, your word goes forth today Lord that it will do what it has set forth to accomplish Lord Jesus that um, it would encourage hearts challenge hearts Lord bring comfort bring care um, and just help us as we journey through Um, the walk of life with you, Lord. So um, truly, Lord, just want to commit this time into your hands, Lord. It is rather a sober day, Lord, knowing that we've just heard the news about our brother, Lord, but we rejoice in the fact that he is with you in glory. And so um, help us today, Lord, just to, to really just make ourselves open and available to what you would have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good afternoon, everyone. Am I with the right crowd? Okay. (laughs) Well, um, if I'm with the right crowd and you have your Bibles, I'd be grateful if you would open up to the uh, first epistle to Timothy and chapter five. And when you're there, as I take a sip of water, you can say amen. Now, I generally always say that because I like to get a little bit of feedback I like to get a little bit of rapport, otherwise it just makes me feel like I'm just up here just shouting out and just having a go at people or something, and I'm not really getting any feedback. So if anybody happens to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I would love it if you would say, Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. That makes me feel a little bit better now. Okay. Well, we are in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we will continue our study in this epistle today. And um, just to consider what the Lord would have to say to us. Now, as we look at chapter 5, if any of you guys have read ahead, maybe you're thinking, well, maybe this doesn't really necessarily apply to me. But God's word is applicable for all things. And maybe the whole subject matter may not necessarily apply to you, but there may be a word in there you, you need to hear, you need to hold on to. And so I encourage you not to just switch off, but just listen to what the Lord may have to say to you as an individual today. Amen. And before we get into what we're going to read, um, I just want to remind us that this epistle to Timothy is what is called a polemic epistle. Now, polemic is one of those fancy words, which means that it's a corrective epistle. It's basically writing to Timothy and addressing issues which had arisen within the church in Ephesus. And we know that over the past X amount of weeks and months, we have been studying this epistle. So we know that basically the, the problems came from the fact that there was false teaching going on. And because there was false teaching, it resulted in false doctrine. And because it resulted in false doctrine, it resulted in wrong types of behavior. 
people weren't acting as they should. They weren't acting really genuinely as those who should be naming the name of Christ. And so, as I said, there was all types of weird behavior going on. If we just did a quick recap, we know that individuals were straying from the faith and turning to idol talk. Idol talk, you know, and it's, you know, idol talk is something which we all can be guilty of getting into at times. Just hanging out with each other and chatting nonsense, idol stuff. Before we know it, we've just spent a couple of hours and it wasn't profitable at all, where we could have been really chopping up the scriptures, gleaning from God's word and finding out a bit more about this wonderful savior who's done so much for us. But we could all be guilty of that. It says that some had rejected the faith and as a consequence, their lives had suffered shipwreck. And you know, being in the faith pretty much 20 years now, I can think of some people who you know, were walking with us and you look back and they're no longer walking with us and you kind of like look at the scripture and you think, well, I see how that applies, how their lives have become shipwreck. I see it. You know, if we're, not, if we're not walking closely to the Lord, if we're not holding on to the Lord, you know, we could all be prone to this. And so we see that Paul is, you know, when he's writing to Timothy, he's saying, look, be careful of these things. These things are happening within the church at Ephesus. We see that there were people who were lifting up holy hands, and many of us today were lifting up holy hands in worship to the Lord, but their hands weren't holy because they knew they had sin in their lives. And Paul addresses that. We know that the women, they were gathering together, and you know, instead of their hearts being sort of like towards the Lord and everything, they were a bit more interested about how they looked and how they was adorned and everything, and you know, putting on a show. And so chapter two, Paul addresses that. We see how there were men, younger men, older men, you know, all trying to get um, positions of authority, wanting to be teachers and everything, but they didn't meet the qualifications. And so chapter three, Paul says, look, if you want to be a teacher, you need to meet these qualifications. You need to have these characteristics within your life. You know, chapter four, you know, uh, Pastor Robert spoke about doctrine, neighbors from hell, doctrines of demons. You know, people were, you know, you know just the simplicity of, of believing in Christ wasn't enough. They wanted to move away and start getting all the, woo, doctrines of demons, being seduced by these doctrines, which, as Pastor Rob said, came directly from hell. But also within the church in Ephesus, we had groups of people, individual groups, or groups of people who were being overlooked. And as they were being overlooked, instead of them, you know, making that known in a righteous way, you know, they were causing tensions, there was disputes. And so, as we actually look at the first epistle to Timothy, you know, if you look at it within that context, Paul is helping Timothy to address the issues which are going on within the church in Ephesus. And it helps us to actually see why he's saying what he's saying, why he's written it in this way. Because sometimes, you know, without knowing these things, we can read the scriptures and think, why did you write that? It doesn't seem to make sense. 
But as you start studying, you find out why these things have been written. And as I said, the whole letter just highlights one issue after, the if, after another, issues within the church of the living God, which we know, we kind of like says, should be the ground of truth. You know, if anyone decides to walk along Wickham Road today and they come through these doors, they should be hearing truth. They should know that they've come in not to the church be in the building, but a group of people who make up the church and whatever we're saying should be based upon truth. That's what they should be hearing. And so, the church of the living God, it's made up of people. And within what we're going to look at today, the first couple of verses anyway, initially, we know that people within this space here right now we've got men we've got women older women younger women older men younger men and this is exactly what Paul is going to help Timothy to deal with when he's addressing issues when he's addressing whether they're issues or whether it's sin it's in someone's life how do you address issues within the church and we know that within any family amongst any group of people, we know that the key ingredient to make anything work is to have genuine love. You know, people know if you really are genuine or not. They know if you really care. They really know if you can be bothered to give them the time of day or not. And I would like to believe that here at Calvary Chapel, South London, that as genuine as we possibly can be, that we are genuine. We are people who do care. We, t- we, we do try to manifest the love of God. And love has to be that basis, that foundation which we all have to work from. And along with love, you know, in God's um, divine order... We see that within any family, there needs to be some type of head, some type of father or father figure. And within that structure, we know that a father figure must know how to bring the right form of correction in every situation. Amen? You know, God the Father gives us the example, the perfect example himself. In Job chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. There's a purpose to what God does. In Proverbs, we see chapter 3, um, verse 12. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. You see, he delights in us. But when we go off key and we're doing the wrong stuff, <laughs> he needs to get us back into line. Now, that might be a, or it might be a, It might be a gentle just, you know what, you're being a bit off key now. I need to just gently push you back in line. Or it might be, you know what, you've really gone gone and done it now. But none of us like chastening. I know when I was a kid, I got whoops once from my dad. And after that, I knew, be a good boy. 
because that doesn't feel good. <laughs> None of us likes chastening. And, you know, we see in Hebrews 12, that gives us our New Testament counterpart about God, you know, chasing the ones he loves. But the ultimate end, as I've tried to allude to, is that God the Father's chastening is to make us whole. Is to make us be the people he wants to be, the individual he wants to be. And here in chapter 5, Paul basically instructs Timothy to act as a father. To confront issues within people's lives. Or to confront sin within people's lives. He has to take on that responsibility of acting as a father because no one else was. But within instructing Timothy to do that, you know, he says, Timothy, if you're going to act as a father, you have to act in the right way. You have to act with the right attitude of love. And you have to act with having the right motivation to genuinely want to help someone, to genuinely want to present these individuals as being whole before God. And that's what Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 says. He says, it says, whom we preach... Warning every man, what just every man, and teaching every man all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So it's a heavy responsibility that Paul is encouraging Timothy to take on board. You know, when I look at this in the light of the responsibility what Pastor Ephraim, Pastor Robert Park, and myself have taken on board, it's a heavy responsibility. Timothy was a young man having to address these issues. I like to think we are still young men. See, that's the robot. I can still do it. Addressing issues. You see? How does a young man address issues within the family of God? Well, in chapter, um, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, you have your Bibles open. It says, do not rebuke an older man, but exalt him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, Younger as sisters with all purity. You see, Paul outlines it here. And we have two verbs in these verses, which are rebuke and exalt. And these two verbs basically set the tone for what Timothy's attitude has to be when addressing these issues within the church. And it's not just for Timothy, it's for all ministers of God who have to deal with addressing sin within the household of God. So Timothy has this mandate when addressing older men. And it says, do not rebuke epipliso in the Greek, which means to chastise harshly. Do not chastise harshly an older man. That's what he's saying. So in regard to older men in the church, we, when confronting issues Timothy's response is not to approach them with, it, with disrespect 
by virtue of their age, you know, he needs to know how to come alongside them and, and you know, treat them respectfully. It says, do not chastise them. Do not treat them harshly. Do not rebuke them, but rather exalt them. And that word exalt is an interesting word because it's parakaleo. And we know that para means to come alongside. How the Holy Spirit comes alongside us at times. You see, he dwells within us, but also sometimes he comes alongside us and he helps us. And so what he's saying is, come alongside older men so that you can strengthen them. So that you can build them up. Treating them with, with respect, just as you would treat your own father. That's the attitude which us young cats are to treat the older members of our congregation. If we have to deal with issues in their life, or generally we, do, we treat them with respect anyway, but if there was issues within their life, if there was sin in their life, you don't just get up in their face and start telling them about themselves. No. You treat them with respect, just as you would your father. But as well as treating them with respect, you still have to deal with the issue. And you know, it's hard being in this position of being a leader where you have to deal with issues. You have to confront people and issues within their life. You have to tread carefully. And when dealing with fathers, you know, um, we don't want to just think, well, they're older and I can't talk to them about these things. You have to address the issue. There's a very good example of this in Galatians chapter 2. I don't know if you remember that, that Peter basically was, was acting off key. And what he was doing was when, when he was eating with and, and fellowshiping with the Gentiles, but when the Jews came along, he'd kind of like withdraw from the Gentiles now and go and like, yeah, I'm a stush Jew. And so Paul saw what was going on and said, bruv, you're a hypocrite. You're a joker. But when you read the text in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, when, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas, Barnabas, yes, Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. You see, Paul says he saw what was going on and he addressed the issue. He didn't just go off to his brethren or his sister and start, you know, saying, boy, do you know what's going on? Is it? Yeah, yeah boy, Peter, you know, what? Yeah, Peter, he's going on. No, he didn't do that. He didn't go and jam with his friends and start susu, 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 susu about what was going on within, you know, Peter's life. No. He went to him and withstood him to his face. And when he saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, then why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? It's foolishness. And so, if you can see this within the text here, you see, 
Paul wasn't being disrespectful to Peter. He was addressing the issue. It needed to be dealt with there and then, and he addressed it. But there's still a lot of respect there. He explains, this is why I'm stepping to you. And really, if you can answer me why you're doing these things, then let's have that dialogue. But you can't answer it because you know you're being a hypocrite. So my point really is just being that, look, even if you have to address older people within the church, don't do it disrespectfully, but you still have to address the issue because the issue still remains the issue. Amen? Amen. Okay, moving on. Next we have younger men as brothers. So when we're addressing younger men within the church, it says that we need to address them with all humility because basically we're all brothers within the church, brothers and sisters. And so there's an equality there. And so someone who's a similar age to you, again, you don't just step in their face and start, you know, you come to them with humility, you come to them respectfully, and again, you try to address the issue. You try to address sin within someone's life. And to this, we know that Matthew 18 again comes into play. You know, if your brother offends you, if your brother offends you, go and tell everybody about it. What's that song? They can read all about it, read all of, yeah, go and tell everyone about it. Matthew 18 doesn't say that. It says, you know, go to your brother. Paraphrasing, go to your brother and tell him the fault and everything. And if your brother hears you, you've gained your brother. But generally, we as believers, we, we, we miss Matthew 18. It's so much easier and it's, it sounds, it's so much good to the flesh when somebody's offended us, someone's done us, done us a wrong one to pick up the phone or go on Facebook and say, boy, you know what such and such has done? And it's out there. Before you know it, everybody knows your business. You've, you've basically took a veil and you've uncovered your, your brother or your sister's sin. Everybody knows about it now. You know their nakedness. And it's deep. It's not good. You know, generally when people come to me and say to me, oh, you know, I'll come to you because da 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 Have you gone to your brother? No. Have you gone to his? No. You need to go to them. Before you come to me, you need to go to them. Because what you're going to do is, you're going to now cloud my mind to start thinking about this person in that way, and it might even be true. Two sides to every story, you know. It may not even be true, but no, we as Christians, modern day Christians, we're like, sus, 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 sus. gossip, gossip, gossip. And it's not good. It is not good. It's not righteous because it's not the way the Lord has instructed those who call upon his name to act. So we are to go to our brothers or our sisters, you know, with respect and humility, trying to right the wrong there's another verse in Galatians portion in Galatians which is very very interesting as well it says brethren if a man is overtaken in any trespass you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness considering yourself lest you also be tempted and it goes on to say bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ 
For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So, really, if we see sin in somebody's life and we just talk about it and tell everyone about it, we're not being spiritual, we're really immature. Immature as believers. The more spiritual thing would be to restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. So, when we're dealing with each other as brothers and sisters within the church, you know, and there's sin, there's a a fault going on, we need to come to them in humility. Okay, the next thing we have is older women as mothers. And, you know, I was just thinking about this, that potentially this could, this could pose a lot of difficult problems or situations because, you know, how does a younger pastor, a younger leader go to an older woman to confront sin in her life? Do you know what I mean? It just seems difficult just thinking about it. And Paul instructs Timothy that, again, older women have to be treated with gentleness and respect, just as you would treat your own mother. See, this whole respect thing, it's this whole thing of you don't want to create more tension and create more of a problem. You really want to come in, not to say, oh, I know what you're doing and I know this about it, but no, you want to come alongside someone so you can draw them back in so that the Lord can just help them to, if it's sin, to repent of the sin and move on with him in the Lord. It's a, restora- it's a whole restoration process. You know, this, this is really, this is in so many ways written to Timothy and it's a it's written to, to leaders, but we all have times when we have difficulties with each other, don't we? And so it's really laying out a, a standard, a pattern of how we're meant to deal with each other within the household of God. Because it's so easy to bring the world into the church, to act just like the world does in the church. You know, every family has their own version of isms, schisms. And you know, generally, most families, once you cut someone off, you cut someone off, you're not talking to them or whatever, and you just think, do you know what? That is long. Life is so short to be carrying around isms, schisms with each other, where we as believers, we shouldn't be acting like the world. The Lord has given us this process, you know. You go to someone, they say, what? Is that what I did? I didn't even mean it. Do you know what? Forgive me. What? You didn't mean it? No, I didn't mean it. Oh, praise God. Let's put... It's beautiful. Or do you know what? I did it and I don't know why I did it. Or boy, forgive me. I can't give you any more examples. Do you know what I'm saying though? It's like... We're not always in the right, are we? There's sometimes where we're blatantly wrong and somebody comes to us and we've got to say, sorry, I'm guilty. Do you know what? Can you forgive me? Do you know what I mean? And how many times, if your brother comes to you, how many times in the day? Pastor Rob, I forget. It's 70. Yeah, but if it's the 71st, in it, you, could, you don't have to give him the 71st one, in it? 70 times seven if your brother comes to you in one day. That means you just have this attitude if somebody... I mean, it comes to the point where you're like, bruv, 
Come on now. We got to stop this now. <laughs> we, we need to lay some hands. I don't know. But, um, but you know, you get my point? We, we need to be... We need to have forgiving hearts. We could become so hard and so cold as believers that wrong and strong. And it's not good. You know... What if the Lord decided that he was never, never going to forgive us? What? That lot? You think I'm coming to planet Earth to save that lot there? You're joking, mate. What if he had that attitude? Where'd we be? What hope would we have? We wouldn't have any hope at all. And so how can we be harboring offenses? It's not good. And so... There needs to be that element of respect and gentleness and wanting to restore one. And then it goes on to say, younger sisters with all purity. And here, emphasis on the all purity. You know, this is one of those verses which when we do marriage counseling, we, we, we mention, you know, because obviously two people are coming together. They're attracted to each other, you know, they're in love with each other and everything. And within that process, before there's a ring on the finger, there's all the temptation to, to want to get jiggy. <laughs> and what they need to do is they, they have to make sure that especially within that time there, that they need to start putting in places, you know, cutout switches or whatever it is so that they can maintain each other's purity. So one of the questions we ask is, sis, what are you doing to help maintain his purity? Whenever you come to him, is it always late at night and you're wearing sort of like stuff which is very revealing and he's just thinking, whoa. Because you're not helping him. And, and bruv, are you just looking and thinking, yeah. I just wanted to come at a certain, certain time because, you know, maybe no one's going to be... What's your mindset? What are you doing to maintain her purity? You see, because as I said, until there is a ring on that finger, she is your sister. He is your brother. All right? And you know what? Even after there's a ring on the finger, you get married. He is still your brother. You are still his sister. Only difference is now you have a special relationship. But you're still brother and sister in the Lord. So before you walk down the aisle, treat her how you would treat your blood sister or your blood brother. And not look at her in a se sexual way. Now that's a bit hard, isn't it? You're thinking, well, boy, how does that work? Well, you know what? God can make it work. With God, nothing is impossible. But you see, that is the standard which God sets. The world might necessarily, like that sounds weird now in modern day society. The world doesn't like that. Test drive. You know. Have it your way. But that's not God's standard. And I'm always going to bat on the side of God. You know, when people come to us and say, but that's hard. Well, yeah, it's hard, but it's right. That's what God expects. 
And so, brothers, you're meant to treat younger women as sisters. Now, I don't have a younger sister, but I'm sure any of you guys who have a younger sister, there's that protection there, isn't there? You just feel like you want to protect her. If a, if a guy steps to your little sister, you're like, bruv, you better come good. Because that's my little sister. You just want to, if anybody tries to abuse them in any way, you just want to, you see? And, and, and brothers in the church, that's how we should be thinking about our sisters. We see somebody step into one of our sisters in there and their intentions are not honorable and righteous. We're like, bruv, what are you, what are you doing? That's my sister, you know. That's how we should be looking out for each other. You know, on a spiritual level, because from a leader's point of view on a spiritual level, you see, we know that there's been cases where leaders of churches have not treated younger women as sisters. They've abused their authority and their relationship there. And I've heard one minister say that leaders of a church who deal inappropriately with young women basically commit spiritual incest. Now, I think that's kind of like a deep statement. But we've got to remember that our actions, you know, have far-reaching effects. We don't just live in this one dimension here. There's another dimension. We're spiritual beings. And so we have to maintain that spiritual aspect of our walk with the Lord individually and corporately. And if you want to know about how God views, you know, the purity of women, the purity of younger women, everything, Leviticus, particularly chapter 18. There we see the gravity of how God the Father looks at such things. And so, after Paul emphasizes that Timothy, look, when you're addressing issues, when you're addressing sin in people's lives, you've got to have the right heart attitude. You've got to be doing it from the motivation of love. You've got to want to, you know, as you come alongside someone, you don't want to just bludgeon them. You want to do it because you want to see them helped along in their walk with the Lord and you want to present them as being whole. You have a responsibility over them. That should be your motivation. That should be your goal. That should be your desire. So after he's done that, what we come to next in chapter five is an issue which was very, very prevalent within the church at the time. And this issue, you know, it's such an issue that Paul decides to to, to start writing from verse 3 up to verse 16 regarding this issue. And the whole issue revolved around the right treatment of widows. Okay, so Timothy, I've just spoken to you about how you need to deal with the different members within your congregation. Now, right, there's an issue. You have to talk to this group of individuals who are widows. How are you going to do it, Timothy? You're just going to jump in there and start getting... No, because we've seen that's not the heart attitude. You need to come sensitively towards this situation now. And it was a very, as I said, it was a very, very prevalent situation during these times. 
And before I start getting into the text, and I'm going to do it slightly different because instead of just reading the whole, the whole passage, I'm just going to sort of like step by step go through it because I think that's just maybe a better way of doing it today. Before we actually get into the text, I need to say that widows have always held a special place in the heart of God. And it's just, I don't know, I don't even know how to say it really, but just again with, with Brother Brian passing away, you know, his wife is now a widow. It's, it just seems weird that we'd be talking about it this, today. But widows have always held a special place in the heart of God. And he is always always desired to provide protection, love and care for wid- widows, but not just widows, but for, for women, for womanhood. God's heart attitude is that he wants to provide protection, love and care. And so the scriptures generally always presents women as being taken care of by a man. Again, as men are seen as that protector, that provider. And so we see this that if a woman, if a woman is not married, we see that the, her father basically is her protector and her provider. And basically, old school, a woman grows up, she's under protection and the care of her father, and then how a marriage should work is that once she gets engaged and everything, the father hands over that responsibility of being a protector and a provider now to her husband, who then becomes her protector and provider. Amen? Right. That's how it should be. So then, if she's not married, it should be her father. If she is married, it should be her husband. Now, if a woman was a widow, then the protection and the care should come from her children, her son or her son-in-law, a family member, an immediate family. And if there wasn't any immediate family, then the way that God designed it, it was that the nation as a whole should take care of widows and provide care and provision for them. And as we look in the Old Testament, we see that widows in particular had the same benefits as the Levites. The Levites were the priestly tribe. The Levites didn't go out to war. The Levites didn't have to work in that way. Um, you know, they were provided for. The other nations brought in a tithe and they presented it to the tribe of Levi. And so the widows were able to partake of that tithe. And so what you basically had here was this built-in social security system for widows, for orphans. God taking care of those who could not take care of themselves. And we see this in Psalm 68 where it talks about God being a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows in his holy habitation. If you're taking notes, we have verses such as Exodus 22:22, Deuteronomy 27:19, and Jeremiah 22, verses 2 and 3. I didn't hear many pages rattling there, so I'm not sure if many. Jeremiah, there you go, 22, verses 2 and 3. Amen? And in these verses, we see that God pleading the cause for widows. Now, I know many people um, have a, a special place in their heart for this book, but we see God's protection and care in the life of Ruth 
and Naomi and his provision being made with, in the life of Boaz, who becomes our kingsman redeemer. He was the next in line who could take on the responsibility for them, and he does. You see the picture there? We see it in the story of Elijah and the widow. But with all this protection and care which was placed within the scriptures, um, and was even spoken of by the prophets, the nation of Israel was not faithful regarding its responsibility towards widows. And this is why many of the prophets, when they came to start speaking out against, you know, whether it was the northern, the, the ten northern tribes or the two southern tribes, they always spoke about what, how they have failed in their responsibility to take care of widows. In Isaiah chapter 1, Verse 16, it says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. You see, Israel were not faithful in that. They weren't doing good. They weren't seeking justice. They weren't rebuking the oppressor. They weren't defending the fatherless and they weren't pleading the cause for the widows. And so God has to come and bring judgment through the prophet Isaiah. And then after these verses, we get the famous verse, which we all love to quote sometimes, which says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. See, they're addressing issues. Take care of your responsibilities. And then we come into the New Testament and we see how the Lord Jesus, you know, he didn't just sort of like shun widows. No, he was always mindful of widows. We see in Luke chapter 7 how he raised the man from the dead who was the only son of a widow. And if he didn't raise him from the dead in this situation, she would have been left destitute. She wouldn't have anyone to take care of her. And so the Lord shows compassion there. We see how the Lord spoke about the woman with two mites in Mark um, chapter 12 and basically highlights the fact that she was more spiritual in the fact that she gave all that she had as opposed to just giving out of her wealth. We have the famous um, reference to the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. You know, avail me of my adversaries. Avail me of, just keeps coming back, keeps coming back, highlighting that, you know what, there's an attitude in, wi in widows that we have to take care of. We have to be mindful of their needs. And it's interesting that when Jesus was on the cross, you know, he's hanging on the cross, but he still finds time to speak to John and say, do you know what? Take care of my mother. Make sure you provide provision for her. I don't want her to be left there on her own, not anyone caring for her. In Acts chapter 6, you know, 
after the ministries of prayer, evangelism, and the ordinances being set, the first ministry we actually really come across is a ministry to widows. And, you know, there's, I could spend so much time just looking at different examples of how God's heart and his desire is to make sure the welfare of widows is taken care of. But moving on through the cross and learning from the Old Testament examples, basically what Paul is saying, if the church is in a position where it's able to support widows, then the church had the responsibility to take care of the basic needs of widows, which was primarily a financial need. And I say that because the word honor being used here has this monetary value to it, which we could also see, which we also see in verse 17, which talks about something slightly different. So, what's the issue with the widows? Well, the issue with the widows is that many in the church were claiming to be widows, but they weren't widows. They just wanted to get the help and the support that was being offered. Then there were those who were true widows, but over time, as I mentioned before, they'd just become bitter, they'd grown wanton and everything, and they were going about from house to house and causing trouble, and they weren't displaying Christian virtue. Then there were young widows who were going astray. And in many cases, the evidence is there that a lot of the younger widows basically abandoned the faith and they remarried unbelievers. And all these groups were looking to the church to say, you need to take care of us. You need to financially meet our needs. And so Paul has to now identify and outline a criteria to see if somebody actually meets the requirements for those needs. Does that make sense? And so Timothy, again, has the task of addressing this issue. And so what he first had to do was find out whether these widows were actually widows. So coming back to verses 1 and 2, you've got to come carefully, Timothy. How are you going to step to someone and say, are you really a widow? He had to be very diplomatic. But he says, verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. And the word widows is a word called kira, which means bereft. And the word in here doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't say, it says that she suffers loss and she was left alone. But it doesn't say how she has suffered loss or how she had been left alone. Now, I know it's very, very cold. I'm going to try and hurry up. But this could have been through death. They could have become widows through death. But what was happening in the early church was that women were coming to faith, but they were married. And many of their husbands were like, whoa, if you're going to follow that Christian thing, I'm not in it. And so they would leave them. They would divorce them. And so now 
you had this woman who, who's now suffered loss because she's no longer got that protection there. She's no longer got someone caring for her and providing for her. So it could have been through death, it could have been through divorce, or it could have been through desertion. But what Timothy had to do now, he had to evaluate whether this person was in a position to receive help. And so, as I said, he had to first establish if this person really was a genuine believer. That was the first criteria. The second criteria was that if this person was a genuine widow and needed any financial help. It says, verse four, but if any widow, you have to look in your white Bibles now to follow with me, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents for this is good and acceptable before God. So basically what this is saying is, is that if somebody was genuinely a widow, they qualified to be a widow, but they were able to look after themselves through their own wealth or because their family was able to help them, their sons was able to support them, then the church was not considered to be responsible to look after those widows because they had a means to look after themselves. Amen? Now, and the responsibility fell on the family because basically Paul's saying, look, your mother or your grandmother looked after you when you was a little baby, when you was a kid growing up. Now you've got the means to look after her in an older age. Look after her. You see, you know, most, um, most, Cultures basically take on this responsibility with the extended family. You see cultures maybe in Asia or Africa where, you know, you have mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers living with each other and the family supports, supports those. But generally in the West, it's something which maybe they're missing in a sense in a, because we have a lot of um, care homes, you know, where you have a lot of parents going, you know, you know, children put their parents into care homes and a lot of them, they do ha- get very good care there but you see Paul's saying no if the family can support you can help you it's their responsibility right the third criteria and this one actually ascertains whether they actually qualify to receive support now she who is really a widow and left alone trusting God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day see this is describing a person who doesn't have anyone to support her, no children or grandchildren. She is alone. She doesn't have any wealth. This person nearly qualifies to receive help from the church. And I say nearly qualifies because it goes on to say that there's still another condition. And the other condition is, is she actually a believer? You see, because it goes on, she trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. You see, this was the problem in the church of Ephesus. They were just handing out help to anyone. And Paul is saying, Timothy, no, there has to be this criteria, you know. 
And so the woman, the widow had to be a, a believer. You know, there had to be some evidence of the fruit of salvation within her life. She had to have a heart of trusting in God and, and that she continuously prayed to the Lord. That's the whole reference, praise night and day. It doesn't necessarily mean that she always prayed 24-7. It means that she had that heart attitude and that lifestyle of praying to God. So, after establishing these things, Paul contrasts this with the next verse, verse 6. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. You see, these widows basically cast off their restraint. They began to live for pleasure. And Paul describes them as being dead as they still live. So he's saying, look, those people are acting like that. You have no responsibility towards them. Because of their lifestyle, they were not the responsibility of the church. And so... These are hard things which Paul is saying, this criteria. But to solidify this, in verse 7, he says, and these things command that they may be blameless. So command them so that those who are really widows, you know, they're blameless. Yeah, we can all see the fruit of their life. They are widows. They're blameless. But those equally who are acting off-key, yeah, you're blameless because you're acting off-key. We don't need to support you. Command these things. So... In verse 8, you know, perhaps one of the most harshest and straightforward verses in the New Testament, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, that's, that's a cold verse. That's a harsh verse. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially of those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, you can see the responsibility which God expects from us, his children who call upon his name, who name the name of Christ. But you see this verse here, it speaks of a man providing for his immediate family and his household. But again, it speaks of children. You know, if you've got to an age where you can help and provide for your own household or even grandchildren, if you're now in a position where, you know, you're minted, you've got loads of money and you can help to support the the household, then you have a responsibility there. And if you don't, God's looking at you saying, boy, you're worse than an unbeliever. You see, especially us men, it kind of like, it provokes us to want to be men who actually provide for our households. That is our responsibility. But the thought actually goes beyond that in a sense that as well as it just being you of your own household, it kind of like speaks about us as a family of God and us Maybe there's those of us in here who are quite wealthy and you see the needs of someone who may be a widow. They might not necessarily be related to you, but you see they have needs and you are in a position to help them. It actually says that if you're in that position to help and you don't help, you too are considered to be 
worse than an unbeliever. So there's that responsibility. And you know, when you think, you think, God, that's a bit harsh, but you think, well, wait there. God provides for us. He provides all things for us. He actually gives us the ability to, to have health and strength so that we can work and earn money. So that when we work and earn money, if we can't use that money to the glory of his name and say, you know what, I see someone in need, let me meet that need. If you can't do that, God's saying, you know what, I don't know, it doesn't seem like you're of me. It doesn't really seem like you believe in me because those who believe in me give. Give of themselves. So, that is the standard which God requires. And then from verse 9, you know, the emphasis basically changes a little bit because instead of talking about providing financial support for those who are widows, now it's talking about giving those who are really widows an opportunity to serve within the church. And it starts talking about, you know, verse 9, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man. This whole husband of one wife, wife of one man thing we was talking about in 1 Timothy 3 starts coming to play again. And I believe that the, the reference to age is basically a reference just to saying that this widow has reached an age now where it's not in her mind to want to remarry. It's not in her mind to want to sort of like pursue that. She wants to give herself over to the Lord. But... Those who are younger widows, they're going to still have that in their mind. So instead of them giving themselves over to the Lord, they're going to be giving themselves potentially over to wanting to get back into another relationship. And it's like the Apostle Paul says that, I wish you all like me, single. Because if you're single, you're kind of like thinking and focused on the Lord. But, but when you're married your focus kind of like changes a little bit because you start thinking about your family and the cares of the world, supporting and raising your family. Not a bad thing, but your focus changes a little bit. And so, just as overseers and deacons, you know, had specific qualifications to serve in the church, older widow, widows also had to demonstrate particular qualities and characteristics to serve in a ministry capacity. And it says that they were well reported for good works. Verse 10. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflictive, if she has diligently followed every good work. You see, these are the things, these are characteristics which widows had to demonstrate. But they're characteristics for all of us. We should all, if we are able to show hospitality and lodge a stranger, that we should be able to do it. You know, the highlight in here is, is if she has washed the saint's feet. That's the highlight for me in this verse. Because that's what Jesus did for the disciples. He took on that low position of a slave and washed their feet. And you know, forgetting these things, talking about widows, you know, just us as believers, do we consider ourselves to be slaves of Christ? 
that we're willing to do the most menial things. Do we consider ourselves in that way? You know, are we happy to come and provide and support the church? Come and put out a few cheers, you know, lose an extra hour's sleep or something and come and set out a few cheers so that you can just serve somebody else. You're not just thinking about coming all the time, listening to a message and then going. But actually coming and contributing because you're a slave. Slaves don't necessarily have any rights, do they? They're just told what to do. You're a slave of Christ, but then we all come with our, oh, I've got my rights. You know, washing the the saints' feet, that was the lowest of the low. And Jesus says, you know what, if I can act as the lowest of the low and wash your feet, then you do likewise. But somewhere along the line, we miss it. Somewhere along the line, I don't see it. And it's a challenge to us all. Widows are expected to do this, but all of us are expected to act in this way, to serve, to use our gifting for the betterment of us all. Anyway, after that rant, verse 11, but refuse the younger widows for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, as I said before, having condemnation because they cast off their first love, first faith, should I say. So again, the epistle is just keeping in theme with it being polemic because the women, the younger widows in Ephesus, whether they were a widow because their husbands had died, whether they had been divorced or whether they'd been deserted, they had made vows before God. Now, in the Jewish culture, if you made a vow before God, that wasn't a light thing. That was a big thing. Because God held you to your vow. So they made vows to say, I'm going to remain celibate. I'm just going to remain pure. I'm not going to think about getting married again. But it wasn't happening. What was happening was is that the sexual and sensual desire, was, 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 the urge was there, and they wanted to get married again. And as I said in the beginning, many of them basically went ahead and married unbelievers. They came out of the faith because of that desire. They had cast off their first faith, which I believe is a reference to their salvation. And it says, and besides, they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not idle, but also gossipers and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Now, again, taking it out of the context of just being young widows, you know, guys, we're, we're just as bad at times. Gossiping, going from house to house, chatting about people's business. And it's not good. And so Paul is saying, look, as opposed to these younger women making those vows, you know what? and they can't keep to these vows, I command you, encourage them to get married. Because if you encourage them to get married, what they're actually going to be doing, you know, Paul's not just being a male chauvinist here now, what they're actually doing is, they're placing themselves back in that place where they're going to be under the protection and care of a man, which is God's desire in the first place. In his divine order. 
You're going to place yourself back in that protection there. So I command you, tell them to get married. If they're able to get married, let them get married. Because now, instead of them growing wanton and everything and unruly, they're going to want to start being there to please their husband, to make a home, to raise a family, etc., etc., etc. So, Paul is actually encouraging them to just fall back into the divine order. And he just reiterates in verse 15, if you're still tracking, for some already have already turned aside after Satan. And we know that once they've turned aside unto Satan, then not to say there's not any way back, but you know, it's not the ideal situation to be in. And then in verse 16, Paul brings the discussion full circle back to reference into verse 3 where he says, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, which means help them, and do not let the church, which is the collective body of believers, be, be burdened that it may relieve those who really are widows. And so... This is the standard which the church was trying to meet, and this is the standard which Timothy um, had the task of establishing. So, you know, we, in so many ways, don't have that real need. We have that need here, but, it, you know, but we have other needs. But it just highlights, as you're looking through Timothy, that when a church has needs, when there's issues... There needs to be a way of addressing those issues, which is righteous, which doesn't become a burden to the church, but the church meets the need. Amen? And so, you know, we can think of many areas. I'm not just going to try and give an example now, but there's many areas where we can meet needs. And it's incumbent upon us to identify those and try to draw up a way where we can righteously meet those needs. Now, one of those needs is to get warm. So um, I'm going to pray. And as I begin to pray, if the worship team are still around, and um, that's if they're still around. No, they're not still around. Okay. Um, is GP around? Um, yeah, um, as they come up, um, yeah, identifying and addressing issues. And I suppose with our members meeting and with how we're trying to structure the church now and move things forward, it's, it's us identifying needs and doing our best to address needs. But... It's gonna, it needs to take a collective effort. It, 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 needs, it means us who consider Calvary Chapel South London to be their church to muck in and to help out and to use their gifting to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Okay. Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, an interesting portion of text, Lord, and I thank you, Lord, that you cover all bases, Lord. You cover the needs of, 
of um, those who really need you um, and how your heart, Lord, and your desire is always there to provide protection, care, and love, Lord, for, for those who are most vulnerable. And within your divine order, Lord, you desire that, that women, Lord, are always in a place where they are protected and cared for. So, Lord, help us here at Calvary Chapel, South London, Lord, to, to know how to implement that care and protection amongst us, Lord, so that we bring glory to your name. And to just continue just to identify areas in our church, Lord, where, where we can just maximize the potential, Lord, of the people you've brought here, Lord Jesus, so that nobody feels like their needs are not being met. But everybody could feel like, Lord, and know that they are valued, that they are loved and they are cared for. So, Lord, we commit these things into your hands, Lord. I pray that we'd all be able to take something from today's message, Lord, and that your name will ultimately be glorified in all of our lives. So, in Jesus' name we pray. out more about us visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on facebook and twitter at cc south london join us next time for more of god's truth to transform your reality